Good morning, good morning everyone. Um, glad you're all here this morning. If you want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with our call to worship taken from Psalm 19. It's a great psalm where we see um, David talk about the two great books of God, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And in those we see both the glory of God in creation and the grace of God in his word. So I'll read the bold section if you'll read after me the non-bold. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number three, we'll sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Oh. 
great hymn we sing about the thrice holy God, three times holy, 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 holy. And each week we're reminded of God's holiness, but it's when we see God's holiness that we see our unholiness. And that's why each week we confess our sins, not only to one another, but to God. And we see this in James chapter 2. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. That's what, we're, that's what, what is required before a holy God is perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. And even if we do 99% of that law right, to fail at one point is to be guilty of all of it. So each week we come and confess our sins. And if you would do that with me this morning, reading our prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, the heavens and earth declare your glory. All creation speaks of your goodness, wisdom, and power. And yet, the knowledge of creation cannot save us. Your law is holy and just and good. Your commandments are pure and right. And yet, in our sin, the law cannot save us. We thank you for the gospel of Christ, that is the power of God for salvation. Forgive us our sins for the sake of Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to look to you. Amen. If you want to turn to hymn number 200, or sorry, 302, we'll sing the great hymn written by Martin Luther, based on Psalm 46, A Mighty Fortress. Should threaten. 
salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We're assured each week that even though we are unrighteous, God has made a way through the person and work of his Son, and that by faith in him we have pardon. And this week, um, during our pastoral prayer, um, we're going to be praying for Covenant Grace, Utah, um, Covenant Grace Church in Utah. And Kayla and Darren are here from Utah visiting us here this morning. So I'm going to ask them to come up and um, we'll pray for them together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, this time that we spend together each week reminded of your greatness and our need for Christ. Uh, We thank you that even though our sin is great, our unrighteousness is many, that you have not left us to our own devices but have sent your Son, and by the power of your Spirit in the Gospel, we have assurance of pardon. Uh, We pray this morning for Covenant Grace Church in Utah, For Pastor Darren and his wife Kayla, we just are so thankful for this sister church in the Lord and the work that they're doing there. We pray that you would um, be with that church this morning, that the gospel would be preached there, and that um, people would see their great need for a Savior and come to repentance and faith in Christ. And we just pray for them. Um, It's a dark, hard place out there in a lot of ways, and we just pray for strength and endurance for the Caldwells, that they would persevere and not um, find strength in in and of themselves, but they would look to you, they would look to the body of Christ, and that you would strengthen them and equip them for 
every good work, Lord. Um, we, th- we just pray for our city, for our government, for wisdom. And we thank you that you've given us a place to worship you freely. And Lord, above all these things, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. We pray this morning for mm-hmm. unity and um, for your gospel to go forth to the nations. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, And also each week we not only confess our sins, but we also confess truths about the faith. And um, our confession of faith this morning comes from an Orthodox catechism where we see two questions, where the catechism is trying to get us to look at this idea of who is our mediator? How are we made right before God? So I'll read the bold question if you'll read the answer after me. And who is the only mediator, the true God, and at the same time, truly man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given us to set us free and to make us right with God. And how do we come to know this? The gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel in the garden. Later, he proclaimed it by the patriarchs and prophets and portrayed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he fulfilled it through his own son. Amen. You can be seated. Um, As I said this morning, we're blessed to be visited by the Caldwells, and um, Darren will actually be um, bringing the word this morning. So, Darren is a, an old friend of mine back from our days in Utah, a pastor out there doing gospel work. Um, I'm very thankful for him. And so, uh, would you welcome Darren? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, as Kendall mentioned, um, Kendall. Emily and my wife and I go way back. I gave my wife like one minute's notice that she was going to have to stand up front. Because um, I'm a good husband like that. Um, but we've known Kendall and Emily for a, for a long time. And, you know, I got to share with some of you a couple months ago when we were out here for the, for the Constitution service. Just what a joy it's been to uh, be praying with uh, Kendall and talking with Kendall. We've been talking about you guys for like years now, it seems at this point. Um, and so it was such a joy to be able to come out a couple months ago, and it's even greater joy to come out today and be here and see what God is doing even just over a couple of months. And um, it's just a, an amazing thing to partner in the gospel, you know, because you don't know, you know the church out in Utah, Covenant Grace Church, that I'm uh, one of the pastors of, but we've been praying for you guys, just like they don't know you guys, but you've been praying for us. And, and for us to get to see, you know, we've been a church out in Utah for about six months. Um, and we want to see more churches planted. And we had no idea that we would get to partner with, at least in some small way, with another church plant so quickly. Um, so you are a blessing to me and a blessing to the church in Utah as well as we get to see um, what God is doing here. We'll have a members meeting next week and I'll get to give an update again of just what God is doing out here. So um, it's such, such a blessing uh, to be able to be a part of that to be here with you guys today. Uh, our scripture reading today, uh, the sermon will be from Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14. 
Galatians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. I'll go ahead and read that for us, and then we'll pray for God's blessing on this word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and ask again that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, you would open our minds to see and behold wonderful things from your word. God, we pray that you would, that you would do the work that only you can do through the blood of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit, that you triune God as we sang to you this morning, that you are the triune God, the blessed Trinity, that you would cause us to worship you more fully and deeply, to live lives of gratitude before you by the power of your word, God, through your gospel. Father, I pray that your word, not my words, but your word would be what remains with us, that that's what we would see today, Lord. And Father, as we read together this morning from Psalm 19, I pray that what we read would be true of us. God, I pray that the words of my mouth this morning and the meditation of our hearts together on your word as we sit under your word and submit to your word. God, we pray that it would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to be discussing in Galatians 3 the law and the gospel. Uh, and back in Utah, I've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, um, and we've recently spent eight weeks in Chapter Five of Matthew Five. It's uh, I hate it's. I hope that it's the longest I ever have to spend in in one chapter of the Bible, at least until we preach like Romans or something like that. <laughs> but we've had to because there's so much, uh, so many commands that Jesus gives in that in that section, and, and Jesus is essentially in Matthew Five helping us understand the entire book of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, in one small chapter of Matthew. So we spent a long time talking about the law and the gospel. And it's my conviction, my understanding, that, that a correct understanding of the law and the gospel is critical to our understanding of Scripture and our walk with God. A correct understanding of the law and gospel, the ability to differentiate between the two, is critical to our understanding of Scripture and our walk with God. The Heidelberg helps us see this. Uh, it's a catechism. I think you guys are all familiar with that from some of the readings you've had here over the last couple of months. 
In the Heidelberg, at the very beginning, we, we should all, most of us be familiar with the first question, which says, what is our comfort in life and death? And it reminds us our only comfort is in Christ. And it says, well, how can we know this comfort? And there's three things we need to know in order to know this comfort. We need to know our guilt. We need to know the grace of the gospel. And we need to know how to live a life of gratitude unto God. And he says, well, how can we know our guilt? How can we know our misery? Well, we know our guilt and our misery through the law of God. And these are things that, we sh- that we're mostly familiar with, right? And then he says, well, how do we know? What is the law of God? And in Matthew 22, it says, it's a summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? How many of us read Matthew 22 and think, yep, that's how I know I'm miserable. I know I'm miserable when I read Jesus' words and I say, love God and love neighbor. I think most of the time, at least in my experience, when I read those verses and when, I've been explain, when those verses have been explained to me, it's always, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Just try harder. Love God more. Love your neighbor more. And that's true. You need to love God more and you need to love your neighbor more. But it's usually presented in a way in which we can accomplish that. But that's not what the law of God requires. The law of God does not require that we try harder. The law of God doesn't require that we be a better person tomorrow than we were today. No, the law of God, as Kendall said earlier today, requires perfect, perpetual obedience. Never failing in any area. Never sinning in one commandment. But always perfectly obeying God. The law of God commands that we perfectly love God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and perfectly love our neighbor as ourselves. If you're like me, that that condemns, that is terrifying, that that's the requirement of God for us. Well, Paul's going to pick up on the need for us to correctly understand the law and correctly understand the gospel in Galatians. And Galatians is an interesting uh, book of the Bible, but it's because it's such a, it was one of the first churches that Paul formed. Galatia itself was a, not a, a city like Philippi was or Ephesus was. It was a region. There were multiple churches in this region, and it was one of the first regions reached uh, with the gospel, especially for Gentiles. But after Paul reached them with the gospel and then moved on to other places. The Judaizers came behind, the Pharisees, these people who believed that in order that it was okay to believe in Jesus. But you just had to add conformity to the law of Moses on top of that if you really wanted to be Christian, if you really wanted to have the fullness of what God commanded. And, and Paul comes along and says, no, anything other than the gospel that he preached, whether preached by man or angels, is anathema, it's a curse. He gives their history, he gives his own history to explain this. And in chapter 3, he begins by saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You who began in the Spirit, are you perfected by works of the law? Did you receive the Spirit by faith, or did you receive the Spirit by law? Reminding them that they began in the Spirit by faith, and they're to continue in the Spirit by faith. 
In verse 10, he tells them that for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27 is a chapter of the Bible where the Israelites were supposed to stand on Mount Ebal, half of them, and then another, I think it was on Mount Gerizim, and half of them were to pronounce cursings if they were to disobey the law, and blessings if they were to obey it. So the law comes in. What, what is the law? The law says, do this and live. As he quotes in verse 12, that the one who does them, quoting from Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them shall live by them. Okay, this is the same commandment that God gave to Adam in the garden. Do this. Be fruitful. Multiply. Take dominion. Eat of all the trees of the garden. Any of them are free to you except for this one. If you eat of this one, you will surely die. If Adam had obeyed, as we see later on in Genesis 3, if Adam had obeyed, he would have had access to the tree of life and lived forever with God in perfect harmony. But he disobeyed, and so death, that God promised him, if you don't do this, you will surely die. That's the opposite end of the law, right? All who do them shall live by them. If you don't do them, you will die. If you don't do the law, you are cursed. We're cursed. This is what theologians of the past have called the covenant of works, or what Edward Fisher, the author of the Marrow of Modern Divinity back in the 1500s, called the law of works. And we see that terminology in Romans 3. This is the law of works. Do the law, and you'll receive blessing. Don't do the law, and you'll receive curse. I live in Utah. We understand this well in Mormonism. We understand well that if you do all the things that you're required to do, you'll get extra blessing. We can typically, if somebody says to you, comes up and says to you, hey, if you just obey the law of God, you'll receive more blessing. If you obey the law of God, you'll really live. I think most of us would be able to point that out and go, That's, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound biblical. So why were the Galatians so easily bewitched? Why were those, they so easily deceived? The reality is that we love them. We love law, not because it's the revelation of God, which it is. No, we love the law because we think, in our own estimation, that we can obey the law. All of us have a deep desire, an inner legalist, an inner Pharisee, that deeply desires to be better than other people. Deeply desires to receive blessing that we think that we earn, something that we can lay our hands on and say, this is ours, right? We see this in, in the promises that are given to us. If you just have enough, we won't call it law, we'll call it faith. If you just have enough faith, then you won't receive these you know, curses and you'll get these blessings. If you just follow the right cultural program, we won't call it law, we'll call it who you vote for. If you just vote for the right people, you'll get all the right blessings. If you just do the right things in our American economy, in our American system, if you lift yourself up by your own bootstraps, you'll, you'll get what's coming to you. Our, our American dream is built on law. 
Work hard and you'll get what's coming to you. Maybe some of us who have kids see it as in our choice of how to school and raise our children. If you school your children the right way, if you raise your children the right way, right? How many moms have dealt with that mom guilt of whether or not you're breastfeeding or formula feeding or sleep training your children or on-demand training? We, we see that all the time with, with moms or with you know, us as men. Like, Are we going to the right schools? Are we getting the right degrees? Are we looking for the right jobs? Are we doing all of these things? And if we just did them, we would be blessed. This is law. This is law. It's not God's law. It's our law. We like to make law, right? The law of God is all that God has given in his word as the commands of God. And like Judaizers, we like to add to the law. And we should be terrified of that. Because the Bible says, Paul says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So even if we were to strip out all those extra laws that we like to make, even if we were to just say, let's follow the Ten Commandments, let's make that our standard of living, our standard of godliness for life. We'll get to the law of God as a standard for a rule of life. But made it as a rule of obtaining life, then we would be okay. No, cursed is everyone who does not do all that is written in the book of the law. Verse 11, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? Because he quotes from Habakkuk 2. The righteous shall live by faith. What is it that the law promises to us? The law promises if we obey it, we will be righteous. That's the goal of the law. Not to be better, not to be good, but to be right with God. But it is impossible to be right with God, to be justified, declared innocent, declared perfect by the law. It comes by faith. Verse 12, the law is not of faith. So why do we talk about the law-gospel distinction? Because Paul talks about the law-gospel distinction. The law is not faith. Faith is not the law. They're separate He talks about this in Romans 3, that the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. The law reveals it, but we can't obtain it by law. We obtain it by faith. And so, thus, because of what Adam did in the garden, denying the, disobeying the covenant of works, bringing condemnation on all of us, we obtain what Adam did. We obtained what Adam earned. earned. Adam earned death, and so we will die. Every one of us in this room will die. Maybe today, maybe in 50 years. We die because Adam died. We die daily as we deal with anxiety, depression, sin, lust, temptation, pride, all of it. We die as we see sin reign in in our mortal bodies. We all received what Adam earned. And so we are without excuse. We are without excuse. And so I'd ask at this point, before we get to the hope of the gospel, what is it that you are relying on? 
What is it that you're relying on today? Not even just for, for eternal salvation, because I think a lot of us could answer that question correctly. We rely on Jesus. But what are you relying on to be good today? Do we rely on the works of the law? Have we been bewitched like the Galatians? Where do we look for for life? Do we look for life from this world, or do we look for life from Jesus? And do we live like we believe this? So what's our hope? I'd be a horrible pastor if I left you at verse 12. <laughs> what is our hope? He tells us the righteousness of God comes by faith. How? How does the righteousness of God come by faith? Why does the righteousness of God come by faith? Why is it not what we can do? It's because of the covenant of grace. It's because in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Every single one of us stands underneath that curse because of Adam. But Jesus endured the curse of the law for us. We are rightly condemned, but Jesus bore our sin, the penalty of the law. The law demanded death. The Old Testament pointed forward to this. It foreshadowed this with the sacrifices. We needed somebody else, a perfect substitute, to come in. But as Hebrews tells us, we know the blood of goats and lambs can't satisfy. We needed a perfect human to die for us. We needed somebody who was God and man to stand between us and bring us back to God. Jesus endured the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The confession or catechism, when we get to this, we read this at our church for Good Friday. It talks about why did Jesus have to be crucified? Could he have died another way? Jesus had to be crucified in order to fulfill what this verse in the Old Testament says. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus hung on a cross, on a tree for us. Because in so doing, he took on our curse. He took on the death that we deserved to die. We are righteous by faith alone. Because the penalty was borne by another and through that penalty being borne by another, we receive, he says in verse 14, the promised Holy Spirit. God made a promise to Abraham that in Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through your seed. That seed of Abraham, Galatians tells us here, is Jesus. Jesus is the seed of Abraham by which the, the promise of the covenant of grace would be applied to us, the Holy Spirit given to us, regenerating us, making us born again, giving us new life. That comes by Jesus inaugurating his covenant with his blood. The Holy Spirit applies for us the promised gospel blessings. That promise was made in Genesis 3.15. The first sin ever committed brought with it the first promise of the gospel. That the heel of the seed of the woman would be bruised as it crushed the head of the seed of the, of the serpent. That promise continued to be made to Abraham. It was revealed through these, as we confess together from 
uh, those from the Baptist Catechism today, that the patriarchs and the prophets promised this. We see in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, there's a new covenant that would come. A new covenant that would free us from the shackles of the law. And what it tells us is that if you are in Christ, you receive what Jesus earned. In Christ, you received what Adam earned. Or in Adam, you received what Adam earned. Let's not get heretical here. In Adam, you received what Adam earned. In Christ, you received what Jesus earned. And there is only one, you are either in Christ or you are in Adam. That is it. That's the whole world summed up. In Christ, in Adam. There's life or there is death. And so what we see is that we are indeed saved by works. Just not our works. We are saved by the works of Jesus. By his perfect, perpetual obedience. By his bearing the penalty of the curse for us. So then what do we do with the law? Do we just get rid of it? Do we ignore it? Do we need it? How do we live? Well, again, we go back to the Heidelberg. We see our guilt. We see our need for grace and the gift of grace in Christ. And then we're called to live lives of gratitude. How then should we live, as Francis Schaeffer asked? Well, again, Matthew 5, as I mentioned, I've been preaching through that. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't get rid of the law. He didn't abrogate the law. It would be the, the big theological term that we use for that. He didn't abolish it. No, he fulfilled the law. And because Jesus fulfilled the law, he changed our relationship to the law. We still have a relationship with the law, but it's changed. We see this in Romans 8, 4. And I know you guys just went through that recently. In Romans 8, we see this beautiful promise that if you're in Christ, you are no longer condemned. Even though your body continues, you continue in your heart, mind, and soul to do the things you hate, to hate the things you should do. You long to worship God, but you find yourself constantly worshiping the sin and yourself. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And it points to Jesus. And in Jesus, we have no condemnation. But instead, the, the law of the Spirit gives life to us. And then what does it say in Romans 8, 4? That we're the, in Romans 8, 3, that the law was powerless because of our sin. The law was good, but it had no power in our lives because of sin. So in Romans 8, 4, it says that God redeemed us so that we might be obedient to the law. God saves us apart from the law and he makes us obeyers of the law. But we no longer have to obey the law perfectly. What does Paul say in Galatians? How we should now relate to God and the law. If we turn back to Galatians 2 verse 19, he tells us, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. So the first thing we do is we use the law to die to ourselves. We look at the law and we recognize, I can't obey this perfectly. I can't do everything that it says here. So I die to my desire to try to justify myself. And I use the law to do that. We recognize that we have been crucified with Christ. Jesus bore the penalty we earned. But it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
that Jesus takes up residence in our hearts, sits on the throne of our hearts and reigns and rules there. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. We obey the law by loving God, loving one another, by not looking to the law, but by looking to Jesus, who perfectly obeyed, by setting the eyes of faith upon him. And as we set our eyes of faith on Christ, what we find is what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we become, by the power of the Holy Spirit, more and more like Jesus, which means that we more and more long to love God and long to love others. And it's imperfect. It's progressive. It's day by day. And sometimes it feels we've taken huge steps backward. But day by day, setting eyes of faith on Christ, looking to Him as the power to do what only God can do. And then as it says in verse 21, we don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness would be the law, and Christ died for no purpose, we recognize that we need an alien righteousness. And that righteousness comes by grace. By grace and not law. And all of this, as it says at the end of verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Distinguishing between the law and the gospel, understanding our life in him, all these theological terms we've thrown out and, and looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament, sometimes it can feel clinical. But this is only possible because of the love of Christ for you. Jesus loved you. Jesus loved me and died on the cross so that we might live in him. The heart of Christ for sinners is as they are brought under the condemnation of the law is to give them life, to welcome all who are thirsty if you're like me, you're thirsty for Jesus because you know as you live six days of the week going through everything that the world throws at us, that our flesh throws at us, that Satan throws at us, we are weary and tired, hungry and thirsty for something more. And Jesus would say, come to me. I love you. My heart is for you. Come to me and I will give you rest like the good shepherd that I am. Come to me, and I will give you water for your thirsty soul. Come to me, and I'll give you a feast. I will satisfy you when nothing else can. If you came here today filled with condemnation because you know that you have lived in sin all week, feeling broken and wretched like the sinners we are, you are welcomed to Jesus. That's who he wants sinners. There's nobody else. What qualifies us for grace isn't our obedience to the law. It's the fact that we broke it. We need Jesus and he loves you. And this isn't just for those who don't know Jesus. This is for us. This was written to believers. We need to remember the gospel because we of all people are prone to turn back to our own righteousness. We're always prone to look around at the world around us and the people around us and try to be better than everybody else. We need to remember the gospel always. 
There's two big camps that try to figure out how to live in relation to the law. There's antinomianism and legalism, or gnomism. To be against the law, to separate the law from the Christian life, or to incorporate the law into the Christian life as a means to, of growth and sanctification. And what we see is that in antinomianism, that anti-law is what that means, says that nothing we do on earth matters except that we have faith. So if you prayed the prayer, you raised your hand, whatever it is that you did to be saved or baptized, whatever symbology we use to, to recognize that, as long as you did that, you're fine. It doesn't matter. You can live it up. You're good. You got your get out of hell free card. Legalism says that everything you do on earth matters, including your faith. So your faith matters, and then you've got to secure that faith. You've got to make it real. You've got to do this to get higher and higher and higher in faith. And the gospel comes as the salve and answer for both of those and says that everything Jesus did on earth matters. And he makes new people through grace who follow him by faith. If you're in Christ, everything you have is a gift, including the faith that held on to him. Everything you have is a gift. And so we follow him out of gratitude for that gift. The law, as I heard one pastor say, is like train tracks. The train tracks give no power to the train to move. Maybe they do, but in this analogy, they don't. We're not talking about electromagnetic trains or anything like that. <laughs> Old school trains, right? Train tracks that have no power to move the train. That's the law. It tells you where you're supposed to go. It's the holy, righteous standard of God. It is the rule of life, as our confession says. But it gives no power. The gospel is the only thing that can give power to move the train of your life down the tracks. It's the only thing, though. And it's out of gratitude to God that we do it. Not because we're trying to earn or secure our future glorification. It's because it already is. It's already secured. It's already earned. It's already done. We need to believe the words that Jesus said. It is finished. Because it is. It's finished. So let's use the law, like 1 Timothy 1 says, let's use the law lawfully and use it to run to Jesus. As we see the perfect character of God revealed in it, let it convict us of our sin. And don't add to it. Don't add to the law. The law of God, like we read earlier, is perfect. We don't need to add more law. Like Charles Spurgeon said when somebody said, you're not supposed to smoke cigars. He said, I had a hard enough time following the first time. I don't need an 11th commandment added to it. <laughs> right? Let's not add to the law. Now, that doesn't give us a, 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 a freedom to just do whatever our vices tell us to do. No, we recognize the purpose of law. Love God and love one another. Let's not add to that. But let's use it to cast ourselves on the and then we give and receive grace liberally. The law has no power to change you, and so the law has no power to change your spouse or your kids or your friends or your coworkers. The law will convict and condemn. How many times do we leave our relationships in that state? Only giving the condemnation of the law, but not the grace that we've received so liberally. Let's not be like that ungrateful 
servant who received 10,000 talents worth of forgiveness but couldn't give 100 denarii of forgiveness to somebody else. If we've been forgiven so great a debt, how can we not forgive one another? How can we not give grace to one another? And let's be Christians in how we motivate one another to spur, as God said, to spur one another on in love and good deeds. We spur one another on with grace, with grace and not with law. And look always to the heart of Christ for you. You will fail. And John, 1 John 1, or 1 John 2 says that he writes all these things so that you will not sin. My heart, Kendall's heart for you is that you would not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we all will, we have one advocate for us who is the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the world that we might come to him and he's already covered the penalty. He already lived the perfect life. He welcomes you back every time you sin. So don't think you have to wait to be clean enough or good enough to get back to Jesus. Immediately after you sin and God convicts you of your sin, run back to him. That's why he convicted you of it. He's bringing you back. He loves you. He will not cast you out. It's impossible for him to cast you out. Because that would require denying himself. Let's pray. Let's go to this great God who loves us. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you paid the penalty of our sin on the cross. That you died when we should have died. That you lived that perfect life that none of us could ever live. And so you changed our relationship to the law and to you. God, I pray that we would joyfully and diligently distinguish between what the law of God is, the commands of God, and the gospel that frees us so that we might love one another more. That to love one another is a good law, and we love your law, but we can't obey that law unless you give us grace, unless your gospel frees us, and unless we are filled by your spirit with love for you. We need you, Holy Trinity, to fill us with your love day by day so that we might follow you. We ask that you would do that, Lord. We praise you for your grace. Help us to look to you day by day. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Darren. We now come to the time in our service where we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're reminded week after week of Christ's sacrifice, as Darren spoke about, the gospel of Christ, that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. And in this supper, not only are our bodies nourished by the bread and the wine, but even our very souls by faith are nourished as we spiritually receive and feed upon Christ. And so we can say with confidence that this is a means of grace, right? It's not just a remembrance. It's a looking back, a a current looking to Christ, and a looking to his coming. And so we do this with great rejoicing because Christ has died. Our body has been spared. Our blood 
has been spared and Christ has gone and done what we could not. And we also come confessing our sin, knowing that we're guilty before God and that we need to examine ourselves each week um, to confess our sin, but knowing that, as Darren said, God is gracious to forgive us. So if you're not a believer, we ask that you abstain from this, uh, lest you eat and drink in an unworthy manner. But if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Christ, then this supper is for you. This sacrament, this ordinance is for you. It's a great means of grace, a great assurance of our salvation. And so we come, like I said, examining and rejoicing and reminded of our Lord's words in John chapter 6 where he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for this visible word that you have given us, this great sign of your covenant promises that as surely as we eat the bread and drink the cup, by faith, we spiritually eat and feed upon Christ and Him crucified. And that you have made a way, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of your only Son. And we know that you, our ascended Lord, does not dwell in temples made with hands, but in heaven, where you ever live to make intercession for us. And so now may you take these common elements and set them aside for your holy purposes that in them, and as we eat them and drink them, that we would spiritually eat and feed and drink upon Christ this morning by faith alone. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. So come this morning, we'll form a line in the middle, grab the elements, come back to your seat, and we'll partake of them together.
so this bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. This cup of blessing which we bless is a communion of the body of Christ. Take, drink, remember, and believe that Christ's blood was spilt to cover all of our sins. Amen. Let us stand now and respond by singing Solid Rock.
seated. We now come to the part of our service where we respond to God um, by giving of our tithes and offerings that we're reminded each week of all the many blessings that God has given us. And so out of gratitude for what God has given us, we give a part of that back to him in worship. Not to earn anything, not to gain God's favor, but because of what he's done for us graciously. So let's pray for our tithes and offerings. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the many blessings that you've given us. And we now give a part of what we've give, been given out of gratitude for what you've given us. May you use these gifts and offerings for the good of your kingdom. And may we see it increase because of this, Lord. In your name we pray. Stand with me as we sing hymn number 13, um, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. of our Lord as you leave. Mm -hmm.